Welcome back to the Hospital Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Gil Parat, and today the topic is pancreatic cancer. And specifically, I am talking about pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma. There are some other more rare type of pancreatic cancers like pancreatoblastoma, uh, pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors, and others. But really, the topic for today when I speak about pancreatic cancer refers to pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma. And we have evolved our understanding, our diagnosis, and even some methods of treatment for this disease, but really have not made much progress in shifting the mortality numbers, which still stand at about 5% survival at five years. As far as risk factors are concerned, cigarette smoking is a risk factor for pancreatic carcinoma. Also, we know that about 5 to 10% of patients with pancreatic cancer do have a family history of the disease. And one genetic factor that has come to light is BRCA2 or BRCA2. We have known for a while that BRCA2 does increase risk of breast and ovarian cancer, but it also increases risk of prostate and pancreatic cancer. Other risk factors are really not as strongly associated but might be more associated in future studies are a BMI greater than 35, heavy alcohol use such as more than six drinks a day, chronic pancreatitis, and even possibly type 2 diabetes. Again, I don't want to say definitively that those are causes of pancreatic cancer, but at this point, there looks to be like there may be some association between those disease processes and pancreatic cancer. But the one we're sure about is cigarette smoking. In fact, it looks like about one quarter or 25% of pancreatic cancer can be attributable to cigarette smoking. In regards to screening tests for pancreatic cancer, there is none yet. There is a disease process that's called hereditary pancreatitis, and this is a rather rare form of pancreatitis. It usually starts in childhood and gets worse as you become an adult. And this is an interesting disease in the sense that your lifetime risk of developing pancreatic cancer is about 35%. So one in three people who have hereditary pancreatitis, a rare inherited form of pancreatitis, will end up getting pancreatic cancer. And that particularly gets worse if these patients smoke cigarettes. But most important, it has now become debatable as to whether some of these patients should get a prophylactic pancreatectomy, a very serious operation, but nevertheless, it's a very serious disease. That's a tough decision because the median survival, once you're diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, is about five months, and about 80% of patients who do get pancreatic cancer will present with metastatic disease. Pancreatic cancer easily invades lymphatic spaces and small veins. And by doing that, it easily metastasizes to the liver. And there's a particularly worrisome process that happens in pancreatic cancer called a desmoplastic reaction. And basically what happens in this desmoplastic reaction is you form a dense stroma. Now, stroma is this 
foundation, supporting tissue of an organ, kind of the opposite of parenchyma. Parenchyma is the part of an organ that is functioning, that works for the organ. Stroma is more of a connective tissue. And as a result of forming this dense stroma through this desmoplastic reaction, you don't get good perfusion into the tumor. So that is one big reason why we think certain types of treatment like chemotherapy don't perfuse well into the tumor, so we're not getting the drug there very well, and therefore it's not very responsive to that sort of treatment. So how does pancreatic cancer present? Very often with painless jaundice or obstructive jaundice. Most of the tumors are in the head of the pancreas, and that's why you get this obstructive cholestasis. Now sometimes people do present with some sort of vague abdominal discomfort. Sometimes there is nausea associated with that. What is scary for us hospitalists and a bunch of other physicians that see a lot of different conditions is that some of the conditions that we see frequently can be a sign of pancreatic cancer. For instance, someone who presents with DVTs, while rarely is going to be an etiology of pancreatic cancer, it could be Trousseau syndrome. And likewise, pancreatitis, which we see very often in the hospital, it can happen that there is obstruction of the pancreatic duct from cancer causing that pancreatitis. And then there's the population of type 2 diabetes, which we diagnose all the time. And that dysglycemia, on rare occasion, can be a presenting symptom of pancreatic cancer. There is no way we can take that entire population of diabetics and everybody with a DVT and abdominal pain and start searching for pancreatic cancer. But I think if we keep it in mind that those are potential symptoms that can be associated with pancreatic cancer, particularly if we're seeing combinations of those symptoms or if we're seeing those symptoms with weight loss or anorexia or other concerning issues like maybe anemia, that we may, at least in the back of our mind, keep the possibility open that this could be pancreatic cancer and then target our testing for the potential of pancreatic cancer. But more often than not, the way we pick this up is painless jaundice. And in that population, you definitely are automatically going to look further for pancreatic cancer. It also should be mentioned that clay-colored stools can be a sign of pancreatic cancer. So once you find that somebody has pancreatic cancer, oftentimes what you will find is that they have stage four disease, meaning they have metastasis to another area, often the liver, though other sites like the peritoneum and lungs can frequently be involved. Again, the problem is when you find stage four, which is metastatic disease, it's a contraindication to even attempt curative resection at that point. The only way to find out what stage of pancreatic cancer your patient has is to do imaging studies. Most of us will get a CT scan not only of the abdomen, but remember this can metastasize into the lungs. We also get a CT scan of the chest. Now, you can get MRI. It's an acceptable alternative but it's not superior 
2 CT scan for pancreatic cancer. An MRI may be very reasonable if there's a contraindication to CT contrast, but usually we do thin slice CT, again, of the chest, abdomen, and the pelvis as the primary way we stage patients with pancreatic cancer. A very elevated CA199 level can indicate a poor prognosis and probably of more importance after resection if it's one of the rare people that can at least attempt a curative resection. If the CA199 is either not dropping or goes up after surgery, that again is a poor prognostic factor. The CA in CA199 stands for cancer antigen, and it is not specific at all to pancreatic adenocarcinoma. It can be found in other cancers, such as gallbladder cancer, stomach cancer, colon cancer, ovarian cancer. Those are other adenocarcinomas. But even a much more benign condition like cholangitis can raise CA199. What's often lost on people when they talk about CA199 is the reason why it's not a good screening test. And the reason for that is, is its sensitivity is very correlated to the size of the tumor. So a very small cancer won't give off a lot of CA199, whereas a large tumor that you already know about will give off a high level of CA199, and that's why it is associated with a worse prognosis. It's not a totally useless blood test, but its importance shouldn't be overstated either, at least in the sense that it's not that important as a screening blood test. But again, it can be very important to follow CA199 levels after resection because if the level is going higher, that is bad news. And to quote an article from May of 2007 in the Mayo Clinic Proceedings, the article's titled Treatment Options for Hepatobiliary and Pancreatic Cancer, it says, quote, even with complete surgical resection, most patients will die of recurrent disease, end quote. And that disappointing outcome with our attempts at surgical cure is all the more reason we have to be very careful about which patients we even suggest undertaking such a major operation. This is big surgery to recover from, so if your survival length is limited, do you really want to have a significantly diminished quality of life recovering from a major abdominal operation if you only have limited time left in life. We want to make the surgery worthwhile and have a higher chance of cure. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find these tumors earlier. And as I said, the CA199 doesn't seem to be the answer for that. There is this kid, Jack Andraka, and many of you may have seen his TED Talk, and he was on 60 Minutes, and at 15 years old, he realized there was a protein, which is called mesothelin, which is a biomarker and a protein that is present in pancreatic cancer. It's also present in certain ovarian and lung cancers. 
And if we can pick up this mesothelin early, we may be able to detect pancreatic cancer early as well. And so this test that he developed to pick up this mesothelin protein is really cheap, apparently three cents per test strip paper, and it's more accurate than the CA-99, and they're thinking of even making it available over-the-counter, weighing the positives and negatives of it being available over-the-counter or at your yearly physical exam after a certain age. That's a whole different debate, but what is clear is that I think we're making some big breakthroughs and strides, and there is some actual hope for once in pancreatic cancer that we are having better detection methods and hopefully better treatment methods as well down the line, and that is a big breakthrough in this disease. We will move on now to talking about how to treat pancreatic cancer, and one of the things I said earlier is that these cancers, these adenocarcinomas of the pancreas, tend to invade the lymphatic spaces and small veins, but they also invade nerves, and that can be very painful. So opioids are frequently used to treat pancreatic cancer pain. Unfortunately, opioids sometimes don't even do the trick in taking care of the pain, so we have to sometimes consider what's called a celiac plexus block. And basically, that's an injection of local anesthesia around the celiac plexus of nerves. And often what's first done is the celiac plexus block with a local anesthetic or numbing medication. And that tells us physicians whether the pain is actually relieved when we numb those nerves. If that works, what is often needed next is a neurolytic celiac plexus block. And to do neurolysis or ablation of these nerves, alcohol or ethanol is often used as the agent to kill the nerve. A plexus is a network of nerves, and the celiac plexus is the largest visceral plexus, and it's located deep in the retroperitoneum. Imaging guidance, usually a CT scan, is used to help with the block or the ablation. These blocks and ablations are very helpful, but it's also important not to oversell them, meaning that they will significantly help with the pain, but actually very rarely completely get rid of the pain. The pain of pancreatic malignancy is multifactorial, and this helps one of the factors in what's causing the pain. One of the other symptoms that often needs to be treated when someone has pancreatic cancer is depression. Now, it may seem obvious that somebody who has a lethal and very depressing disease would be depressed, but what's interesting in pancreatic cancer is that depression often precedes the cancer diagnosis, and therefore we think there may be actual factors released into the blood that are causing depression. As far as chemotherapy goes for our stage 4 patients, which again are most of the patients that we will see with pancreatic cancer, mostly gemcitabine is used right now. It is an anti-neoplastic, anti-metabolite drug, usually given about once a week for the first seven weeks, and then the oncologist may change the regimen. It can be well tolerated, and it can have very significant side effects including a lot of nausea and vomiting and anemia and leukopenia and therefore infections. Kind of what you would expect from a drug that inhibits DNA synthesis, not only in the pancreatic cancer, but also in your normal cells. 
And gemcitabine does have a survival benefit. Usually people who take it, about 18% will be alive at one year as opposed to 2% that don't take gemcitabine. So you have to weigh the benefits versus the side effects and how involved you want to be with doctors and hospitals and chemotherapy units versus going on and living your life without chemotherapy. And for a lot of people, quality is much more important than quantity. Now that being said, some people actually have a superior clinical benefit in regards to improvement in pain when they take gemcitabine. So it's really not a black and white answer. There's a lot of gray areas when deciding whether or not to take chemotherapy for pancreatic cancer. Now, what about our patients who do have surgery with a curative intent, even though it usually doesn't cure the disease? That is why there has been a lot of thinking about using gemcitabine in this population and often is used. And just recently, and I mean October 9th, 2013, in JAMA, there was a study published titled Adjuvant Chemotherapy with Gemcitabine and Long-Term Outcomes Among Patients with Resected Pancreatic Cancer. And the conclusion was that among patients with macroscopic complete removal of pancreatic cancer, the use of adjuvant gemcitabine for six months compared with observation alone resulted in increased overall survival as well as disease-free survival. These findings provide strong support for the use of gemcitabine in this setting. So that's a quote of the conclusion of that study. And basically what that shows us is that at this moment in history, gemcitabine can be used for all pancreatic cancer patients if the patient wants to pursue that after a discussion of risks and benefits. There is a combination chemotherapy regimen called fulfirinox, and that actually may have a slight survival benefit compared to gemcitabine, but the problem with fulfirinox is it has substantially greater toxicity than gemcitabine. The first major fork in the road is a decision whether or not you're going to do chemotherapy, and you do need to be able to talk a little bit about the risks, benefits, and side effects of the different regimens. And then if the patient says, absolutely not, I'm never going to do chemotherapy, they may not want to talk to an oncologist, but they should always be offered the ability to talk to an oncologist, and they can get more into the different types of chemotherapy regimens that are available. Let's talk a little bit about stage 1 and 2 disease, as these are the only adenocarcinomas of the pancreas that provide an opportunity for cure via surgery. On rare occasion, you'll find these tumors because of symptoms, and on other occasions, you may find them incidentally because you're imaging the abdomen for other reasons. You may or may not want to get a tissue diagnosis depending on the patient and the clinical situation before proceeding to surgery. One way to get a tissue diagnosis is endoscopic ultrasound. And sometimes you're not sure if you're dealing with a pancreatic tumor or pancreatitis. An endoscopic ultrasound is a common imaging procedure for pancreatic cancer. Endoscopic ultrasound does have the benefit of sometimes being able to find small pancreatic masses that are undetected by CT scan, 
And then, of course, if you're doing a biopsy with endoscopic ultrasound, you can actually make a tissue diagnosis. And that biopsy is done by fine needle aspiration. So if there are ambiguous findings, ambiguous radiologic findings, that is usually when you do want to proceed to an endoscopic ultrasound. And again, it's worth reemphasizing that not all pancreatic masses need an endoscopic ultrasound or biopsy. And let's move ahead now and say you do find a stage 1 or 2 disease where the tumor is either limited to the pancreas or has some regional lymph node metastasis but does not involve the superior mesenteric artery and does not have distant metastases, and you do want to consider resection of the pancreas to try and cure the disease. You still have to pick the population wisely since it is a big operation. It takes a lot of recovery and has some mortality associated with it. And I want to quote from a journal called A Cancer Journal for Clinicians. It's put out by the American Cancer Society. There is a review article called Recent Progress in Pancreatic Cancer in the September-October 2013 journal, and it is far superior to anything you can find in the usual journals like the New England Journal, JAMA, Mayo Clinic Proceedings in regard to recent reviews of pancreatic cancer. And in addition to everything they talk about with pancreatic cancer, they do discuss patient selection for surgery. And I'm going to quote them. They say, patients with poor overall health as a result of comorbid conditions and advanced age, which they characterize as 75 or greater, are not likely to benefit from pancreatectomy and may be harmed by the further debilitation and immunosuppression brought on by these operations. Needless to say, the type of major surgery you're going to get depends on where the pancreatic tumor is present. If it's present in the tail of the pancreas, you will require a distal pancreatectomy with an end-block splenectomy. On the other hand, when the tumor is present in the head of the pancreas, what is required is a pancreaticoduodenectomy, which we also refer to as a Whipple operation or a Whipple procedure. During a Whipple procedure, the antrum, duodenum, proximal jejunum, head of the pancreas, gallbladder, and distal common bile duct are removed and block, and a vagotomy is performed. And maybe um overemphasizing the point, but it's such a big surgery, and we do have to talk about survival rates after such a big surgery. So I will quote up to date where they discuss the survival rates after surgically negative margins after this procedure. And the quote is, large series show five-year survival rates of only 10 to 25% and median survival between 10 and 20 months. End quote. But if you're one of those who survive, you can have a cure. Now, let's talk about tumors in the body or tail of the pancreas. These are almost always found too late. And even if it looks like you might have resectable disease, the surgeon will usually do laparoscopic exploration before proceeding with resection. 
and then they often will find that there's a cult peritoneal metastasis. Now, what is the data if you do get a distal pancreatectomy? Again, survival does not look real good, and I will once again quote up to date. In one study, only 13 of 105 patients, that's 12% of the patients, with cancer of the body or tail of the pancreas had resectable tumors, and the median survival was only 13 months after surgery with only five patients remaining alive at two years. So the big hope is that we get better at chemotherapy and medical management of this disease process as well as detecting it at a much earlier stage. So hopefully the surgery will have a better cure rate and possibly medical therapies such as specifically targeting genes or specifically targeting cancer-specific cell metabolism and pathways will have some benefit and payoff for patients in the future. There's no doubt we are always increasing our understanding of the biology of pancreatic cancer, and by doing that, we can better understand what should be the targets of therapy. And that brings us to the end of a rather morbid and depressing topic. I would like to end this podcast with a poem that I found on a website. The website is called pancreaticcancerjourney.com, a very nice website put up by a daughter whose mother has pancreatic cancer. And the poem is by an unknown author. And it says, cancer is so limited. It cannot cripple love. It cannot shatter hope. It cannot corrode faith. It cannot destroy peace. It cannot kill friendship. It cannot suppress memories. It cannot silence courage. It cannot invade the soul. It cannot steal eternal life. It cannot conquer the spirit. You have been listening to the Hospital Medicine Podcast with your host, Dr. Gil Perrott.